Do you want to be happy? Of course you do. Then what's standing in your way? Your happiness is entirely up to you. This has been revealed to us by a man of divine serenity and wisdom who spent his life among us and showed us, by his personal example and by his teaching, the path to redemption from unhappiness. His name was Epicurus. This is the sort of thing you might have heard an Epicurean preaching in the market square of an ancient city. If it sounds like a religious message, that is no coincidence. Epicurus was revered by his followers as though divine, a sage who had answers to all the important questions of life. What attracted converts was the prospect of personal happiness, for which Epicurus offered clear philosophical advice. The fundamental obstacle to happiness, says Epicurus, is anxiety. No matter how rich or famous you are, you won't be happy if you're anxious to be richer or more famous. No matter how good your health is, you won't be happy if you're anxious about getting sick. You can't be happy in this life if you're worried about the next life. You can't be happy as a human being if you're worried about being punished or victimized by powerful divine beings. But you can be happy if you believe in the four basic truths of Epicureanism. There are no divine beings which threaten us. There is no next life. What we actually need is easy to get. What makes us suffer is easy to put up with. This is the so-called four-part cure, the Epicurean remedy for the epidemic sickness of human anxiety. As a later Epicurean puts it, don't fear God, don't worry about death. What's good is easy to get, and what's terrible is easy to endure. What's good is easy to get. We need food, water, shelter from the elements, and safety from hostile animals and people. All these things lie ready to hand and can be acquired with little effort or money. We don't need caviar, champagne, palaces, or bodyguards, which are expensive and difficult to acquire and keep. People who want more than they need are making a fundamental mistake, a mistake that reduces their chances of being satisfied and causes needless anxiety. While our bodies need food, water, shelter, and safety, all that our souls need is to be confident that our bodies will get what they need. If my body is contented and my soul is confident, then I will be cheerful, and being cheerful is the key to being happy. As long as we are cheerful, it takes very little to keep us happy, but without cheerfulness, we cannot even enjoy even the so-called pleasures of life. Being cheerful is a state which is full of pleasure, Indeed, Epicurus calls it the limit of pleasure, and it is a normal state. But if we suffer from anxiety, we need to train ourselves to attain and maintain it. The discipline of Epicurean philosophy enables its followers to recognize how little they actually need, to enjoy possessing it, 
and to enjoy the confidence that they will continue to possess it. On the other hand, there is no reason not to enjoy occasional luxuries if they happen to be easily available. There is nothing wrong with luxury in itself, but any dependence on luxuries is harmful to our happiness, as is every desire for unnecessary things. What's terrible is easy to endure. There's no denying that illness and pain are disagreeable, but nature has so constituted us that we need not suffer very much from them. Sickness is either brief or chronic, and either mild or intense, but discomfort that is both chronic and intense is very unusual. So there is no need to be concerned about the prospect of suffering. This is admittedly a difficult teaching to accept, especially for young people, but as people get older and more experienced in putting up with suffering, they tend to recognize its truth more and more, as did the Roman philosopher Seneca, whose health was anything but strong. Epicurus himself died in excruciating pain, from kidney failure after two weeks of pain caused by kidney stones. But he died cheerfully, he claimed, because he kept in mind the memory of his friends and the agreeable experiences and conversations they had had together. Mental suffering, unlike physical suffering, is agony to endure. But once you grasp the Epicurean philosophy, you won't need to face it again. Know the limits of what you need, recognize the limits of what your body is likely to suffer, and enjoy the confidence that your life will be overwhelmingly pleasant, unless you poison it with anxiety. Don't worry about death. While you are alive, you don't have to deal with being dead, but when you are dead, you don't have to deal with it either, because you aren't there to deal with it. Death is nothing to us, as Epicurus puts it, for when we exist, death is not yet present, and when death is present, then we do not exist. Death is always irrelevant to us, even though it causes considerable anxiety to many people for much of their lives. Worrying about death casts a general pall over the experience of living, either because people expect to exist after their deaths and are humbled and terrified into ingratiating themselves with the gods, who might well punish them for their misdeeds, or else because they are saddened and terrified by the prospects of not existing after their deaths. But there are no gods which threaten us, and, even if there were, we would not be there to be punished. Our souls are flimsy things which are dissipated when we die, and even if the stuff of which they were made were to su survive intact, that would be nothing to us, because what matters to us is the continuity of our experience, which is severed by the parting of body and soul. It is not sensible to be afraid of ceasing to exist, since you already know what it is like not to exist. Consider any time before your birth. Was it disagreeable not to exist? And if there was nothing bad about not existing, then there is nothing bad for your friend when he ceases to exist. Nor is there anything bad for you about being fated to cease to exist. 
It is a confusion to be worried by your immortality. And it is an ingratitude to resent the limitations of life, like some greedy dinner guest who expects an indefinite number of courses and refuses to leave the table. Don't fear God. The gods are happy and immortal, as the very concept of God indicates. But in Epicurus' view, most people were in a state of confusion about the gods, believing them to be intensely concerned about what human beings were up to and exerting tremendous effort to favor their worshippers and punish their mortal enemies. No, it is incompatible with the concept of divinity to suppose that the gods exert themselves or that they have any concerns at all. The most accurate, as well as the most agreeable, conception of the gods is to think of them, as the Greeks often did, in a state of bliss, unconcerned about anything, without needs, invulnerable to any harm, and generally living an enviable life. So conceived, they are role models for Epicureans, who emulate the happiness of the gods, within the limits imposed by human nature. Epicurus said that he was prepared to compete with Zeus in happiness, as long as he had a barley cake and some water. If, however, the gods are as independent as this conception indicates, then they will not observe the sacrifices we make to them, and Epicurus was indeed widely regarded as undermining the foundations of traditional religion. Furthermore, how can Epicurus explain the visions that we receive of the gods if the gods don't deliberately send them to us? These visions, replies Epicurus, are material images traveling through the world, like everything else that we see or imagine, and are therefore something real. They travel through the world because of the general laws of atomic motion, not because God sends them. But then what sort of bodies must the gods have if these images are always streaming off them, and yet they remain strong and invulnerable? Their bodies, reply Epicurus, are continually replenished by images streaming towards them. Indeed, the body of a god may be nothing more than a focus to which the images travel. The images that later travel to us and make up our conception of its nature. If the gods do not exert themselves for our benefit, how is it that the world around us is suitable for our habitation? It happened by accident, said Epicurus, an answer that gave ancient critics ample opportunity for ridicule, and yet it makes him a thinker of a very modern sort, well ahead of his time. Epicurus believed that the universe is a material system governed by the laws of matter. The fundamental elements of matter are atoms, which move, collide, and form larger structures according to physical laws. These larger structures can sometimes develop into yet larger structures by the addition of more matter, and sometimes whole worlds will develop. These worlds are extremely numerous and variable. Some will be unstable, but others will be stable. The stable ones will persist and give the appearance of being designed to be stable, like our world, and living structures will sometimes develop out of the elements of these worlds. 
This theory is no longer as unbelievable as it was to the non-Epicurean scientists and philosophers of the ancient world, and its broad outlines may well be true. We happen to have a great deal of evidence about the Epicurean philosophy of nature, which served as a philosophical foundation for the rest of the system. But many Epicureans would have had little interest in this subject, nor did they need to, if their curiosity or skepticism did not drive them to ask fundamental questions. What was most important in Epicurus's philosophy of nature was the overall conviction that our life on this earth comes with no strings attached, that there is no maker whose puppets we are, that there is no script for us to follow and be constrained by, that it is up to us to discover the real constraints constraints which our own nature imposes on us. When we do this, we find something very delightful. Life is free, life is good, happiness is possible, and we can enjoy the bliss of the gods rather than abasing ourselves to our misconceptions of them. To say that life is free is not to say that we don't need to observe any moral constraints. It is a very bad plan to cheat on your friends or assault people in the street or do anything else that would cause you to worry about their reactions. Why is this a bad plan? Not because God has decreed that such things are immoral, but because it is stupid to do anything that would cause you to worry about anything. In the view of some moral philosophers, both ancient and modern, this view makes Epicureanism an immoral philosophy because it denies that there is anything intrinsically wrong with immoral conduct. If we could be sure that nobody would find out, then we would have no reason to worry about the consequences and therefore no reason not to be immoral. True, admits Epicurus, but we can never be sure that nobody will find out. And so the most tranquil course is to obey the rules of social morality quite strictly. There have been developed over the centuries for quite understandable reasons, mostly to give ourselves mutual protection against hostile animals and people. The legal and moral rules of society serve a good purpose, although it is not worthwhile to exert yourself to become prominent in public affairs and have the anxiety of public office. Much more satisfying and valuable is to develop individual relationships of mutual confidence, for a friend will come to your assistance when an ordinary member of the public will not. In fact, friends are our most important defense against insecurity and are our greatest sources of strength after the truths of Epicurean philosophy itself. Friends and philosophy are the two greatest resources available to help us live our lives in confidence and without anxiety. Perhaps the best thing of all would be to have friends who shared our Epicurean philosophy with us. Many Epicureans lived in small Epicurean communities, as did the followers of Pythagoras in earlier times. These Epicurean communities were probably modeled on the community that Epicurus established on the outskirts of Athens, called the Garden. We know very little about the organization of these communities, except that they did not require their members to give up their private property to the commune.
unlike the Pythagoreans and some modern religious cults, and that they probably involved regular lessons or discussions of Epicurean philosophy. They also included household servants and women on equal terms with the men, which was completely out of line with the social norms of the time. But Epicurus believed that humble people and women could understand and benefit from his philosophy, as well as educated men, another respect in which Epicurean philosophy was well ahead of its time. The membership of women caused scandalous rumors, spread by hostile sources, that the garden was a place for continuous orgies and parties. Rumors apparently supported by Epicurus's thesis that bodily pleasure is the original and basic form of pleasure. But Epicurus believed in marriage and the family for those who are ready for the responsibility, and he disproved of sexual love because it ensnares the lover in tangles of unnecessary needs and vulnerability. Here's the typical pattern. First lust, then infatuation, then consummation, then jealousy or boredom. There's only anxiety and distress in this endlessly repeated story, except for the sex itself, and Epicurus regarded sex as an unnecessary pleasure, which never did anyone any real good. Count yourself lucky if it does you no harm. There is nothing intrinsically wrong with casual sex, but much more important than either love or sex is friendship, which dances around the world, announcing to all of us that we must wake up to blessedness. One of the remarkable features of Epicurus's philosophy is that it can be understood at several levels of subtlety. You don't need to be a philo- philosophical genius to grasp the main points, which is why Epicurus coined slogans and maxims for ordinary people to memorize, to help them relieve their anxiety whenever it might arise. There were signet rings and hand mirrors, for example, engraved with the words, death is nothing, so the faithful could be reminded while going about their daily business. Suppose, though, that you're not convinced that death is nothing, for example, and you want proof before you organize your life around that idea. For people like you, Epicurus wrote letters outlining his basic arguments, which circulated freely among those interested in the topic. Suppose again that you have already had a philosophical education and you want to assess Epicurus's arguments against the competing arguments from other philosophers, for example. For this purpose, he wrote elaborately careful and thorough memoranda of his arguments. His main treatise on natural philosophy ran to a staggering 37 volumes. This extremely long book was given an intermediate but still quite detailed summary by Epicurus, and there may have been other levels of length and subtlety. If on a certain topic, all our evidence seems superficial, that is probably because the more extensive discussions of that topic have not survived. Modern students of Epicureanisms should know that the status of available evidence, none of Epicurus's major works, survives in its entirety. 
but of his many abbreviations and summaries, three survive because they are quoted in Lives and Sayings of Famous Philosophers by Diogenes Laertius, an otherwise unknown 3rd century AD compiler. The most important of these is the letter to Minosius, which gives the basic outline of the Epicurean approach to personal happiness. The letter to Herodotus gives the basic outline of the Epicurean materialist philosophy of nature, and the letter to Pythocles concerns the natural phenomenon of the sky, which many felt were the work of the gods. These letters can be trusted to reflect Epicurus's own views and ways of arguing, as can the so-called principal doctrines, a group of 40 short and pithy remarks, which were collected so that the basic principles of the Epicurean system could be easily memorized. A similar collection, the so-called Vatican sayings, is a mixture of sayings from Epicurus and Epicureans and we print the sayings that seem likely to have come from Epicurus himself. The picture that emerges from this evidence can be somewhat enlarged with fragments from Epicurus's works. In some cases, these are literally fragments, charred and brittle pieces of papyrus, the ancient equivalent of writing paper, excavated from a villa in Herculaneum, which was engulfed by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79. Their damaged state explains the numerous gaps, lacunae, in our text of part of Book 25 of Epicurus's On Nature. Other fragments are small portions of Epicurus's works quoted by Epicurean writers, such as Philodemus of Gadara, whose charred books were also found in Herculaneum. Still other fragments are small portions of Epicurus's works, quoted by other ancient authors whose works survived in the ordinary way by being copied from handwritten book to handwritten book. Sometimes the sources tell us which treatise or letter he is quoting from. In other cases, we cannot know what work the quotation comes from. Not all quotations can be taken to be accurate, word-for-word citations from Epicurus. We have indicated by using quotation marks where we thought the source was purporting to quote Epicurus, but ancient standards of accuracy were not as rigorous as modern ones, especially when ancient writers were attacking their intellectual enemies. Other sources don't even purport to quote Epicurus's exact words, and we need to yet be more careful with these reports, which are referred to us as testimonia. Readers should regard purported quotations as generally more reliable than testimonia, but should always prefer Epicurus's own texts to both these other kinds of evidence. Fortunately, most of the evidence coheres, and it is usually possible to reach a reasonable assessment of Epicurus's views at least on the topics where evidence is available. We also have long discussions of Epicureanism from the pen of the well-known philosopher Cicero, who discussed Epicureanism in several of his books. Cicero was not himself an Epicurean, 
and he was content to rely on Epicurean handbooks of a period close to his time. Sometimes Cicero does not really understand what he is transmitting, though that doesn't stop him from arguing against it. And in these cases especially, we can be confident that he is faithfully paraphrasing his Epicurean source. But what he transmits is only what he selects from his Epicurean source. And his source is not Epicurus himself, but a later or more or less orthodox follower. Plutarch, another well-known philosopher, was a more scholarly and more hostile critic, who argued against the, the Epicurean philosophy with all the devices of argument, legitimate and illegitimate as at his command. There are more quotations from Epicurus and Plutarch than in Cicero, but the Epicurean way of thinking is more distorted because Plutarch's purpose is to ridicule it by belittling, belittling it element by element. The most useful evidence from Plutarch comes, comes in his attack on the book written by Colotes, an early follower of Epicurus, but there is evidence also in his critique of the self-effacing Epicurean lifestyle. Is live inconspicuously a wise precept? And in his polemical essay called, It is quite impossible to enjoy life on Epicurean principles. By far, the most useful body of evidence that is not transmitted in our reader is a poem by Lucretius, a Roman Epicurean of the first half of the first century BC. This is a long didactic poem in six books called De Rerum Natura, On the Nature of Things, which sets out in Latin verse the Epicurean philosophy of nature, drawing an occasional liberating and anti-superstitious lesson. It is a classic of world literature, which impresses as much by its rich poetic qualities as by the rigor of its thought. But it is not possible to know exactly how reliable it is as a source for the views of Epicurus, since the so-called major summary um, on which it seems to have been based has entirely perished. We print two particularly important passages which do seem to have been drawn quite directly from Epicurus's own works, but probably most of Lucretius's poems reflect Epicurus's views equally well. A good example is Book 3, lines 830 to 1094, which offers the arguments for believing that death is nothing to us, although we cannot be certain that Lucretius is not introducing new ideas there is nothing here that is incompatible with Epicurus's known views. A comprehensive study of Epicureanism would include Lucretius among its main body of evidence, and we recommend that our readers read it in the excellent recent translation, with introduction and notes by Martin Ferguson Smith. Lucretius on the Nature of Things Epicurus developed a system of philosophy and a way of living that deserve our respect and understanding, perhaps even our allegiance. This way of living claimed many thousands of committed followers, 
all over the ancient Mediterranean world in cooperative communities that lasted for hundreds of years. But from the very beginning of his teaching mission, his message was opposed and distorted, first by academic philosophers and political authorities, and later by Christians. Epicureans apparently almost never switched their allegiance to other philosophical systems, whereas other schools regularly lost students to the Epicureans. Why? Perhaps because the Epicureans found that their system made excellent sense. But the explanation offered by Arcesilius, Epicurus's rival, is typically dismissive. You can turn a man into a eunuch, but you can't turn a eunuch into a man. Even in modern times, the critics of Epicureanisms continue to misrepresent it as a lazy-minded, shallow, pleasure-loving, immoral, or godless travesty of real philosophy. In our day, the word Epicureanism has come to mean its opposite, a pretentious enthusiasm for rare and expensive food and drink. Please have the courage to ignore 2,000 years of negative prejudice and assess this philosophy on its own considerable merits. This book gives you the evidence you need. The Ancient Biography of Epicurus Text 1 The Life of Epicurus by Diogenes Laertius Epicurus, son of Neocles and Cherestrate, was an Athenian citizen of the deme Gargutus and of the clan Philidae. According to Metrodorus in his On Noble Birth, it is said, especially by Heraclides, in his summary of Sotion, that he was raised on Samos after the Athenians sent colonists there, that at 18 years of age he went to Athens when Xenocrates was in charge of the academy and Aristotle was spending time in Chalcis, that he went to join his father in Colophon, when Alexander of Macedon had died, and Perdiccas expelled the Athenians from Samos. That he spent some time there and gathered students around him, then returned to Athens again in the archonship of Anaxicrates, and that up to a certain time he philosophized, philosophized in conjunction with the others, but later developed the system which bears his name and taught his own distinctive views. He himself says that he began to practice philosophy when he was 14 years old. Apollodorus the Epicurean says, in book one of his Life of Epicurus, that he turned to philosophy because he was contemptuous of the school teachers for not being able to interpret for him the lines about chaos in Hesiod. Hermippus says that he had been a grammar teacher, but then came across Democritus's treatises and threw himself headlong into philosophy. There is abundant evidence of the fellow's unsurpassed kindness to all men. His country honored him with bronze statues. 
His friends were so numerous that they could not be counted by entire cities. All his followers were transfixed by the siren song of his teachings, except Metrodorus of Stratonicea, who went over to Carneades, overburdened, perhaps, by his unsurpassed acts of goodness. Though nearly all the others have died out, his, success his succession has always persisted, one student following another in a numberless sequence of leaders. And there is his gratitude to his parents, kindness to his brothers, and gentleness to his servants, as is clear both from the provisions of his will and from the fact that they joined him in philosophizing, the most notable being the aforementioned Mus. In a word, he was a friend to all mankind. His piety to the gods and love for his country were too great for words. So gentlemanly was he that he did not even participate in political life. And despite the severely troubled times then, afflicting Greece, he lived out his life there, traveling through Iona two or three times to see friends. And friends came to him from all over and lived with him in the garden. And he bought it for eighty minas. Diocles says in book three of his summary that they lived very simply and frugally. At any rate, he says, they were content with a half-pint serving of weak wine, and generally their drink was water, and that Epicurus did not think it right to put one's possessions into a common fund, as did Pythagoras, who said, Pythagoras, who said friends' possessions are common. For that sort of thing is a mark of mistrust, and if there is mistrust, there is no friendship. In his letters, he himself says that he is content with just water and simple bread. And he says, send me a little pot of cheese so that I can indulge in extravagance when I wish. This was the character of the man who taught that pleasure is the goal. According to Diocles, he was most impressed by an act Anaxagoras among earlier philosophers, although he opposed him on some points, and by Archelaus, Socrates' teacher. He used to train his followers, even to memorize his treatises. Apollodorus, in his chronology, says that he studied under Nausiphanes and Praxiphanes. He himself denies it, and says in the letter to Eurip, Eurylochus, that he is self-taught. He denies that there ever was a philosopher named Euchippus, and so does Hermarchus. Some, including Apollodorus the Epicurean, say that Euchippus was Democritus's teacher. Demetrius of Magnesia says that he studied under Sinocrates too. Ariston says in his life of Epicurus that he copied the canon straight out of the tripod of Nasiphanes, under whom he also says he studied, in addition to Pamphilus the Platonist in Samos, and that he began to philosophize at the age of 12 and founded his school at the age of 32. He was born, according to Apollodorus in his chronology, in the third year of the 109th Olympiad, 
in the archonship of Sosigenes. On the seventh day of the month of Gamelion, seven years after Plato's death, when he was 32, he first founded a school in Mytilene and Lampsacus and stayed for five years. He then moved to Athens and died there in the second year of the 127th Olympiad in the archonship of Pythoratus at the age of 72. Hermarchus, son of Agamortus of Mytilene, took over the school. He died of kidney stones, as Hermarchus too says in his letters, after an illness of 14 days. At that point, as Hermippus also says, he got into a bronze bathtub filled with warm water, asked for unmixed wine, and tossed it back. He then bade his friends to remember his teachings, and died thus. Ancient Collection of Maxims Text 5. The Principal Doctrines what is blessed and indestructible has no troubles itself, nor does it give trouble to anyone else, so that it is not affected by feelings of anger or gratitude. For all such things are a sign of weakness. 2. Death is nothing to us. For what has been dissolved has no sense experience, and what has no sense experience is nothing to us. 3. The removal of all feeling of pain is the limit of the magnitude of pleasures. Wherever a pleasurable feeling is present, for as long as it is present, there is neither a feeling of pain nor a feeling of distress, nor both together. 4. The feeling of pain does not linger continuously in the flesh. Rather, the sharpest is present for the shortest time while what merely exceeds the feeling of pleasure in the flesh lasts only a few days. And diseases which last a long time involve feelings of pleasures which exceed feelings of pain. 5. It is impossible to live pleasantly without living prudently, honorably, and justly, and impossible to live prudently, honorably, and justly, without living pleasantly, and whoever lacks this cannot live pleasantly. 6. The natural good of public office and kingship is for the sake of getting confidence from other men, at least from those who, from whom one is able to pro provide this. 7. Some men want to be famous and respected, believing that this is the way to acquire security against other men. Thus, if the life of such men is secure, they acquire the natural good. But if it is not secure, they do not have that for the sake of which they strove from the beginning according to what is naturally congenial. 8. No pleasure is a bad thing in itself. But the things which produce certain pleasures bring troubles many times greater than the pleasures. 9. If every pleasure were condensed and were present, both in time and in the whole compound, body and soul, or in the most important parts of our nature, 
then pleasures would never differ from one another. 10. If the things which produce the pleasures of profligate men dissolve the intellect's fears about the phenomena of the heavens and about death and pains, and moreover, if they taught us the limit of our desires, then we would not have reason to criticize them, since they would be filled with pleasures from every source and would contain no feeling of pain or distress from any source, and that is what is bad. 11. If our suspicions about heavenly phenomena and about death did not trouble us at all and were never anything to us, and moreover, if not knowing the limits of pains and desires did not trouble us, then we would have no need of natural science. 12. It is impossible for someone ignorant about the nature of the universe, but still suspicious about the subjects of the myths, to dissolve his feelings of fear about the most important matters. So it is impossible to receive unmixed pleasures without knowing natural science. 13. It is useless to obtain security from men, while the things above and below the earth, and generally the things in the unbounded, remained as objects of suspicion. 14. The purest security is that which comes from a quiet life and withdrawal from the many, although a certain degree of security from other men does come by the means of the power to repel attacks and by means of prosperity. 15. Natural wealth is both limited and easy to acquire, but wealth, as defined by groundless opinions, extends without limit. 16. Chance has a small impact on the wise man, while reasoning has arranged for, is arranging for, and will arrange for the greatest and most important matters throughout the whole of his life. 17. The just life is most free from disturbance, but the unjust life is full of the greatest disturbance. 18. As soon as the feeling of pain produced by want is removed, pleasure in the flesh will not increase, but is only varied. But the limit of mental pleasures is produced by a reasoning out of those very pleasures of the flesh, and of the things related to these, which used to cause the greatest fears in the intellect. 19. Unlimited time and limited time contain equal amounts of pleasure, if one measures its limits by reasoning. 20. The flesh took the limits of pleasure to be unlimited, and only an unlimited time would have provided it. But the intellect, reasoning out of the goal, out the goal and limit of the flesh, and dissolving the fears of eternity, provided us with a perfect way of life, and had no further need of unlimited time. But the intellect did not flee pleasure, and even when circumstances caused an exit from life, it did not die as though it were lacking any aspect of the best life. 21. He who has learned the limits of life knows that it is easy to provide, 
that which removes the feeling of pain, owing to want, and make one's whole life perfect. So there is no need for things which involve struggle. 22. One must reason about the real goal and every clear fact, to which we refer mere opinions. If not, everything will be full of indecision and disturbance. 23. If you quarrel with all your sense perceptions, you will have nothing to refer to, judging even those sense perceptions which you claim are false. 24. If you reject unqualifiedly any sense perception and do not distinguish the opinion about what awaits confirmation in what is already present in the sense perception and the feelings and every application of the intellect to presentations, you will also disturb the rest of your sense perceptions with your pointless opinion. As a result, you will reject every criterion. If, on the other hand, in your conceptions formed by opinion, you affirm everything that awaits confirmation, as well as what does not, you will not avoid falsehood, so that you will be in the position of maintaining every disputable point in every decision about what is and what is not correct. 25. If you do not, on every occasion, refer each of your actions to the goal of nature, but instead turn prematurely to some other criterion in avoiding or pursuing things, your actions will not be consistent with your reasoning. 26. The desires which do not bring a feeling of pain when not fulfilled are not necessary but the desire for them is too easy to dispel when they seem to be hard to achieve or to produce harm. 25. No, 27. Of the things which wisdom provides for, the blessedness of one's whole life, by far the greatest is the possession of friendship. 28. The same understanding produces confidence about there being nothing terrible which is eternal or even long-lasting and has also realized that security amid even these limited bad things is most easily achieved through friendship. 29. Of desires, some are natural and necessary, some natural and not necessary, and some neither natural nor necessary, but occurring as a result of a groundless opinion. 30. Among natural desires, those which do not lead to a feeling of pain if not fulfilled, and about which there is an intense effort, these are produced by a groundless opinion, and they fail to be dissolved, not because of their own nature, but because of the groundless opinions of mankind. 31. The justice of nature is a pledge of reciprocal usefulness, neither to harm one another nor be harmed. 32. There was no justice or injustice with respect to all those animals 
which were unable to make pacts about neither harming one another nor being harmed. Similarly, for all those nations which were unable or unwilling to make pacts about neither harming one another nor being harmed. 33. Justice was not a thing in its own right, but exists in mutual dealings in whatever places there is a pact about neither harming one another nor being harmed. 34. Injustice is not a bad thing in its own right, but only because of the fear produced by the suspicion that one will not escape the notice of those assigned to punish those actions. 35. It is impossible for someone who secretly does something which men agreed not to do in order to avoid harming one another or being harmed to be confident that he will escape detection even if, in current circumstances, he escapes detection 10,000 times. For until his death, it will be uncertain whether he will continue to escape detection. 36. In general, outline justice is the same for anyone, for it was something useful in mutual associations. But with respect to the peculiarities of a region or of other relevant causes, it does not follow the same thing is just for everyone. 37. Of actions believed to be just, that whose usefulness in circumstances of mutual associations is supported by the testimony of experience has the attribute of serving as just whether it is the same for everyone or not. And if someone passes a law and it does not turn out to be in accord with what is useful in mutual associations, this no longer possesses the nature of justice. And if what is useful in the sense of being just changes, but for a while fits our basic grasp of justice, nevertheless it was just for that length of time at least for those who do not disturb themselves with empty words, but simply look to the facts. 38. If objective circumstances have not changed and things believed to be just have been shown in actual practice not to be in accord with our basic grasp of justice, then those things were not just. And if objective circumstances do change and the same things which had been just turn out to be no longer useful, then those things were just as long as they were useful for the mutual associations of fellow citizens. But later, when they were not useful, they were no longer just. 39. The man who has made the best arrangements for confidence about external threats is he who has made the manageable things akin to himself and has at least made the unmanageable things not alien to himself. But he avoided all contact with things for which not even this could be managed, and he drove out of his life everything which it profited him to drive out. 
40. All those who have the power to acquire the greatest confidence from the threats posed by their neighbors also thereby live together most pleasantly with the surest guarantee. And since they enjoyed the fullest sense of belonging, they did not grieve the early death of the departed, as though it called for pity. Text 6. The Vatican Collection of Epicurean Sayings Every pain is easy to despise, for pains which produce great distress are short in duration, and those which last for a long time in the flesh cause only mild distress. It is hard to commit injustice and escape detection, but to be confident of escaping detection is impossible. Necessity is a bad thing, but there is no necessity to live with necessity. In most men, what is at peace is numbed, and what is active is raging madly. We are born only once, and we cannot be born twice, and one must for all eternity exist no more. You are not in control of tomorrow, and yet you delay your opportunity to rejoice. Life is ruined by delay, and each and every one of us dies without enjoying leisure. We value our characters as our own personal possessions, whether they are good and envied by men or not. We must regard our neighbors' characters thus, too, if they are respectable. No one who sees what is bad chooses it, but being lured by it as being good compared to what is even worse than it, he is caught in the snare. It is not the young man who is to be congratulated for his blessedness, but the old man who has lived well. For the young man, at the full peak of his powers, wanders senselessly owing to chance. But the old man has let down anchor in old age, as though in a harbor, since he has secured the goods about which he was previously not confident by means of his secure sense of gratitude. If you take away the chance to see and talk and spend time with the beloved, then the passion of sexual love is dissolved. He who forgets the good which he previously had has today become an old man. One must not force nature, but persuade her, and we will persuade her by fulfilling the necessary desires, and the natural ones too, if they do not harm us, but sharply rejecting the harmful ones. Every friendship is worth choosing for its own sake, though it takes its origin from the benefits it confers on us. Dreams have neither a divine nature nor prophetic power, but they are produced by the impact of images. Poverty, if measured by the goal of nature, is great wealth, and wealth, if limits are not set for it, is great poverty. 
one must grasp clearly that both long and short discourses contribute to the same end. In other activities, the rewards come only when people have become, with great difficulty, complete masters of the activity. But in philosophy, the pleasure accompanies the knowledge. For the enjoyment does not come after the learning, but the learning and the enjoyment are simultaneous. One must not approve of those who are excessively eager for friendship, nor those who are reluctant. But one must be willing to run some risks for the sake of friendship. Employing frankness in my study of natural philosophy, I would prefer to proclaim in oracular fashion what is beneficial to men, even if no one is going to understand, rather than to assent to common opinions and so enjoy the constant praise which comes from the many. One can attain security against other things, but when it comes to death, all men live in a city without walls. To show reverence for a wise man is itself a great good for him who reveres the wise man. The cry of the flesh. Not to be hungry, not to be thirsty, not to be cold. For if someone has these things and is confident of having them in the future, he might contend even with Zeus for happiness. We do not need utility from our friends so much as we need confidence concerning that utility. One should not spoil what is present by desiring what is absent, but rather reason out that these things too were among those we might have prayed for. Nature is weak in the face of the bad, not the good, for it is preserved by pleasures and dissolved by pains. He is utterly small-minded for whom there are many plausible reasons for committing suicide. The constant friend is neither he who always searches for utility, nor he who never links friendship to utility. For the former makes gratitude a matter of commercial transaction, while the latter kills off good hope for the future. He who claims that everything occurs by necessity has no complaint against him who claims that everything does not occur by necessity, for he makes the very claim in question by necessity. One must philosophize and at the same time laugh and take care of one's household and use the rest of our personal goods and never stop proclaiming the utterances of correct philosophy. In the same period of time, both the greatest good and the dissolution of bad are produced. It is impious to love money unjustly and shameful to do so justly, for it is unfitting to be sordidly stingy, even if one is just. When the wise man is brought face to face with the necessities of life, 
He knows how to give rather than to receive. Such a treasury of self-sufficiency has he found. Natural philosophy does not create boastful men, nor chatterboxes, nor men who show off the culture which the many quarrel over, but rather strong and self-sufficient men who pride themselves on their own personal goods, not those of external circumstances. We utterly eliminate bad habits like wicked men who have been doing great harm to us for a long time. We should try to make the latter stretch of the road more important than the earlier one. As long as we are on the road, and when we get to the end, we should feel a smooth contentment. Friendship dances around the world, announcing to all of us that we must wake up to blessedness. One should envy no one, for the good are not worthy of envy, and the more good fortune the wicked have, the more they spoil it for themselves. One must not pretend to philosophize, but philosophize in reality. For we do not need the semblance of health, but true health. Misfortunes must be cured by a sense of gratitude for what has been, and the knowledge that what is past cannot be undone. The wise man feels no more pain when he is tortured than when his friend is tortured and will die on his behalf. For if he betrays his friend, his entire life will be confounded and utterly upset because of a lack of confidence. They must free themselves from the prison of general education and politics. The stomach is not insatiable, as the many say, but rather the opinion that the stomach requires an unlimited amount of filling is false. Everyone leaves life as though he had just been born. The sight of one's neighbors is most beautiful if the first meeting brings concord, or at least produces a serious commitment to this. For if parents are justifiably angered at their children, it is surely pointless to resist and not ask to be forgiven, but if their anger is not justifiable, but somewhat irrational, it is ridiculous for someone with irrationality in his heart to appeal to someone set against appeals and not to seek in a spirit of goodwill to win him over by other means. There is also a proper measure for parsimony, and he who does not reason it out is just as badly off as he who goes wrong by total neglect of limits. Praise from other men must come of its own accord, and we must be concerned with healing ourselves. It is pointless to ask from the gods what one is fully able to supply for oneself. Let us share our friend's suffering not with laments, but with thoughtful concern. A free life cannot acquire great wealth, 
because the task is not easy without slavery to the mob or those in power. Rather, it already possesses everything in constant abundance. And if it does somehow achieve great wealth, one could easily share this out in order to obtain the goodwill of one's neighbors. Nothing is enough to someone for whom enough is little. The ingratitude of the soul makes an animal greedy for unlimited variation in its lifestyle. Let nothing be done in your life which will cause you to fear if it is discovered by your neighbor. One should bring this question to bear on all one's desires. What will happen to me if what is sought by desire is achieved, and what will happen if it is not? Even some bodily pains are worthwhile for fending off others like them. In a joint philosophical investigation, he who is defeated comes out ahead in so far as he has learned something new. This utterance is ungrateful for past goods. Look to the end of a long life. As you grow old, you are such as I would praise, and you have seen the difference between what it means to philosophize for yourself and, it, and what it means to do so for Greece. I rejoice with you. The greatest fruit of self-sufficiency is freedom. The noble man is most involved with wisdom and friendship, of which one is a mortal good, the other, the other immortal. He who is free from disturbance within himself also causes no trouble for another. A young man's share in salvation comes from attending to his age and guarding against what will defile everything through maddening desires. The disturbance of the soul will not be dissolved, nor will considerable joy be produced by the presence of the greatest wealth, nor by honor and admiration among the many, nor by anything which is a result of indefinite causes. The Art of Happiness Forward In Athens in the 3rd century BC, everyday consciousness reached an unprecedented level of wonder. Athenian minds were animated with questions. What is the nature of the universe? What is real? How does man fit into the cosmos? What is a good life? What is a happy life? Are those two, good and happy, in harmony or at odds with each other? And what role do the gods play in all this? Philosophical discourse had become the gossip of the realm. Out on the south slope of the Acropolis, where the theater of Dionysus was producing a new comedy by Menander, the audience remained buzzing long after the play was over as they discussed the moral implications of the drama. Are extramarital affairs ever justifiable? Does bad behavior necessarily lead to personal unhappiness? Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics was invoked, as were the moral arguments of Plato. 
Later, as members of the audience walked back through the Agora, they may have encountered Zeno of Citium in the colonnade, lecturing students on the tenets of Stoicism. Turn east and past the Lyceum, where Aristotelian philosophy was being taught, then cut back toward the academy, where Platonic philosophy was the subject at hand. And then, farther up a hill overlooking the metropolis, they would have reached a garden gate that bore these words. Stranger, here you will do well to tarry. Here our highest good is pleasure. The caretaker of that abode, a kindly host, will be ready for you. He will welcome you with bread and serve you water also in abundance with these words. Have you not been well entertained? This garden does not whet your appetite, but quenches it. They had arrived at Epicurus's garden, home of the master's boarding school. Here, at the long outdoor table, non-stop philosophical discussion reached its zenith, and fine dining, as one can tell from the host's offered menu, reached its nadir. No pseudo-Epicurean foodies at this table. Unlike at the academy or the lyceum, women, some of them concubines and mistresses, as well as a few slaves, joined the conversation. Further, many of the students here had arrived without academic credentials in mathematics or music, de rigueur for entry to the other Athenian schools of higher learning. Everyone in the garden radiated earnestness and good cheer. The subject under discussion was happiness. Epicurus's notion of happiness has a decidedly Buddhist quality. Happiness is tranquility, and tranquility comes principally from putting aside worldly hankerings, ambitions for power, status, involvement in government, the pursuit of voluptuous sensory experiences, and the accumulation of material goods. Two of Epicurus's most quoted maxims distill this idea. Not what we have, but what we enjoy constitutes our abundance. And in its more admonitory form, nothing is enough for the man to whom enough is too little. Remarkably, Epicurus's ideas about ataraxia, the freedom from mental anguish and disturbance that is required for true happiness, were more directly influenced by Buddhist thought than a 21st century reader might imagine for a Greek philosopher of that epoch. Two of Epicurus's early influences, Democritus and Pyrrho, had actually journeyed all the way to what is now India, where they had encountered Buddhism in the schools of the gymnosophists, naked teachers. A parallel requirement for Epicurean happiness is freedom from fear of nature and from punitive gods. In his magnificent opus inspired by the philosophy of Epicurus, The Nature of Things, 
The Roman poet Lucretius reser- reserved some of his highest praise for Epicurus's brave resistance to religious tradition and its superstitious interpretations of natural phenomena. Epicurus was among the first of his time to make such a clean and decisive break with what he considered religious hocus-pocus. Interestingly, in Epicurus's youth on the island of Samos, he often accompanied his mother, Cerestrata, on her visits to peasants in her role as fortune-teller and faith-healer. Apparently, Epicurus eventually saw more harm than benefit in his mother's occupation. Epicurus defined happiness as the absence of pain, both physical and mental, and this raises some fascinating questions for the philosophically-minded of every era. One could argue that the absence of pain brings a person up to only zero on the happiness scale. To push the meter into the positive zone, more is required, say, a plate of roast lamb with all the trimmings. But Epicurus would shoot back that the pleasure of eating lamb has all kinds of future pains attached to it, like a bloated stomach, or worse in the long run, a hankering for more lamb, or lamb-like delicacies. Putting a person back in the position of the perpetually frustrated individuals for whom enough is always too little. These calculations, which pleasures lead to future pain, and which pains lead to future pleasure, comprised a good deal of the discussions around that table in Epicurus's garden. The deliberations could get particularly tricky when they touched on questions of the relatively relativity of measurement. What if a man in physical pain is administered tincture of poppy, opium, and subsequently reports that not only is his pain gone, but he is also experiencing more pleasure than he ever did before? From this, the man might conclude that in his ordinary non-opium life, he has all manner of pains that he was not fully aware of until they were removed. Only now does he truly feel no pain. Of course, Epicurus would warn him that the life of an opium user is one of always hankering for the next fix, hence not pleasant in the long term at all. Nonetheless, the question raised by the opium user, who says that he finally feels no pain, makes the idea of happiness as the absence of pain more slippery than it at first appears. On the other hand, looking at Epicurus's philosophy of happiness from a less analytic point of view, there may be a spiritual psychological dimension to the idea the absence of all pain should be the goal of life. Perhaps without both physical pain and mental disturbances in the form of fears, frustrations, and anxieties, a person may be able to participate fully in simply being. That is not zero, that is the best it gets. Such a man can revel in his sheer existence. 
we can achieve that summit of human experience, sometimes known as being here now. Reading Epicurus, one might one may find himself returning again and again to that blissful idea. To be sure, the question of how to lead the happiest life is only one a- aspect of Epicurus's comprehensive philosophy. His cosmology that described, with astonishing prescience, all matter of consisting of minute atoms guided by laws of cause and effect, and its theory of swerves, which exempts human volition from these deterministic laws, constitute much of his opus, especially as restated by Lucretius. Yet the question of the best way to live has always remained Epicurus's fundamental consideration. His theories about the composition of matter, causation, perception, truth, and knowledge are all in service of this ultimate concern. The primary importance of his atomization of the physical world is in what it reveals about the pain we needlessly inflict upon ourselves due to ignorance and superstition, as well as what it tells us about the mechanics of human nature and therefore how we can satisfy that nature. Reading Epicurus now with a 21st century mindset, it may be hard to resist reflexively viewing his teachings about the nature of things as naive science riddled with logical fallacies and unjustified leaps of reason. But if we return to his pre-scientific world while willfully suspending our attachment to the scientific method, we're able to read Epicurus's philosophy as life-enhancing poetry rather than as testable theory. And what compelling poetry it is. At the table in Epicurus's garden, the men and women are listening attentively to the master. They all agree that Epicurus is the best teacher they could have. He has thought about his philosophy long and hard, honing it in his discussions with others. His welcoming of his students' questions, patient with their misunderstandings, tolerant of opposing views. In spite of his obvious physical infirmities, his joy in simply being alive is palpable and infectious. People feel good about life and themselves merely by being in his company. In short, Epicurus has all the makings of what is contemporary terms we would call a charismatic self-help guru. For a moment, the 21st century mind might recoil at the idea of a self-anointed pundit proclaiming to his students and to us exactly how to live. But I, for one, read on for the simple reason that I suspect Epicurus may, in fact, have gotten it right.